Polarization is tearing our world apart. Many of us feel isolated and unable to speak our minds even to our friends and family. This is Effective Conversations with Yale Feiner, where we explore opposing viewpoints on polarizing topics and learn to speak with courage and compassion. Today, I'm talking with Sergeant Nate Holt from the Nelson Police Department. This conversation is my first attempt to hear the police side in the environmental conflict with the police on the front line. In the recent episodes, we heard a lot about police violence against land defenders, and I wanted to learn how is it to be a police officer in that conflict, how they view their power and their role in this conflict, and their understanding about systemic racism. Would you like me to call you a, an officer so there is no name? I don't need to call uh, you in your name. No, because it doesn't matter. I mean, under, under our police act, I have to identify my last name or my badge number. So I don't. Mm. And in, in Nelson, there's no really such thing as anonymity. People know who I am. I'm off shift and I'm okay with that too. So you can call me okay. whatever you want. You can call me Nate. You can call me Sergeant Holt, Officer Holt. doesn't matter to me. Thank you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my name is Yael. I'm doing a podcast and uh, research. Uh, started two years ago about how we talk with each other about hot topics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It became very toxic, you know, the conversation we have. And I just like went with the flow. My initial idea was climate and then vaccination was a big thing. It, it, mm-hmm. I started before COVID. So it was all about COVID vaccination. And the last thing I did was uh, interviewing people in Ferry Creek. Oh, okay. Yeah. And as a therapist and a coach, my intention is more about communication, mm-hmm. less about what's the truth. Yeah. You know, like more how we eventually get, get to a situation when we effectively communicate and getting better and seeing better results. Yeah. So this is where I'm coming from to this. Um, and maybe maybe we can start with just introducing what is police, how it's working, how it's functioning, uh, how who pays the salaries, you know, something for people that like completely don't know. And sergeant okay. is sergeant is a is high level in the middle, right in the middle. In the middle. I think. Yeah. So in tell me, I'm so like really green. I don't I have no idea. Okay, so do you, do you live in the Nelson area or? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the, I guess where most people, because I grew up here, and the question I had, and the question a lot of people have when it comes to Nelson Police Department is, why do we have two police departments in our town? Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we technically don't. Uh, the city of Nelson, when you have any city over a population of 5,000 people, they need to make a decision whether they want to form their own police department or they want to contract a different police department to provide services to their to their city. So the majority of, of cities in British Columbia contract the RCMP. And, um, and Nelson's one of the ones that decided in 1893 to form its own police department. So we are um, the taxpayers of Nelson, whether it's RCMP or a, a municipal police department like Nelson, they're the ones who are paying the for the service that they they get, whether it's RCMP or whatever police service. Um, so that's why we we are in existence. It's just some, at some point somebody made a choice to have their own police department. Um, there is differences between the two. 
Um, I've always worked in municipal police departments. So I worked in Vancouver before this for seven years. And I work, um, I've worked here since 2009. Um, I started as a, a constable here doing patrol. And then I worked in general investigations doing more complex files. And then now I'm a, a, a supervisor or a sergeant. So I'm, I oversee um, five members that are frontline patrol officers uh, in this department on, on one half of the patrol section. So that's kind of my role here. I, and um, I guess, you know, with the different, I've never worked a, really for the RCMP. I've worked with them. So I don't really feel super comfortable in talking about, you know, the, the differences between the two, because I don't really know. But I do feel that um, just by virtue of the fact that when you join a municipal police department, the only time you leave is if you, well, if you get dismissed, obviously, um, if you resign or retire or choose to go to a different police department. But um, you have the ability in a municipal police department to do your entire career here. Mm-hmm. And there's pros and cons to that. But I think one of the, the big pros is that it comes back to the, the founding principles of metropolitan policing by Sir Robert Peel in 1829. And, and one of the most important ones in that is the police are the community and the community are the police. That's a, a kind of a, a summarized version. The police are the police are the community and the community are the police. So he's yeah, that's just kind of an excerpt from one of his nine principles, but uh-huh. um, it's the most important one because what it kind of demonstrates is that there's no hierarchy. The community has as much say in what the police do, and the police are really, you know, everybody's responsible for safety in the community, but the police are the only ones who are paid for, to do that job full time. Mm-hmm. But our role, our roles are mm-hmm. very similar, if not identical. So then we do have topics like police reform questions, uh, defund police, I feel, and I'm sure that not every police officer feels the same way I do. I feel that that are things that need to be listened to because it's the community asking questions about what is the actual function of the police. And if police departments and police leaders don't listen to those questions um, and take time to consider things, then we end up becoming less relevant as a service inside of our society. Mm -hmm. And it's a a very important service on many levels. So. so you said you are um, supervising other police officers about crimes happening in the city? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the big questions, I think, because statistically around, I think it was 2018, so it's a little bit older uh, statistic now, about 83 to 84% of what police do is not, does not fall into criminal code enforcement mm. or You know, arresting and apprehending offenders it falls into assisting mental health it falls into assisting ambulance it falls into check well-beings it falls into all these other areas um, and there's a lot of questions around that right now saying what is the actual job of the police what should they be doing should they I've heard many you know read many articles saying please shouldn't be doing check well-beings please shouldn't be involved in overdose calls people please shouldn't be involved in you mental health calls those types of things because we're taking on more and more of that we have taken on more and more mm. of that in in the time I've been a police officer so it's it's, a, so it's, it's a really new things it's a new thing that the police is doing now no it's been a progression for for quite a few decades and right. police have always um, you know I, I think when when it comes to these very complex issues and people run out of solutions where they get to a position where they're having major conflict and difficult conversations and And they don't have an answer they they reach out to the police and say we need you to resolve this and oftentimes we're able to do that through mediation or facilitation um, 
as opposed to, okay, we're just going to arrest this person and silence their viewpoint, right? I don't think that's something that, because if you do that, then you're going to cause somebody else to you know, have the same viewpoint, and that's just not going to be an effective approach to, to resolving these really complex issues. You see, you're already surprising me. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So do you, what the skill you need to learn? Like, what do you learn for dealing with mental health and, and those kind of issues, complex issues? Um, we do. I mean, we do quite a lot of ongoing training. Um, a lot of it's mandated by the province, but a lot of it, you know, police have, have learned a long time ago that if we deal with issues kind of uh, upstream as opposed to waiting for them to come to us, and that kind of falls into the term of being proactive, that it benefits us, mm. even though we're not, there's nothing in the criminal code or a common law duty that says that we need to be, there needs to be a proactive element to policing. Police officers have figured out as human beings that if we deal with it, well, it's a smaller issue, then we can, yeah. we don't have to deal with, you know, the avalanche coming down the hill, so to speak. So there's, you know, that element too. So police officers do become quite proactive and they, like we have a beat officer and, and other police officers on my squad who will go out and interact with people who our regular clients in the mental health system to ensure that they're doing okay, ensure they don't need to, you know, we don't want them to get to a point where they're in crisis and then we have to deal with them then because it's not pleasant for them. It's not pleasant for us. It's not you know, not ideal in any way, shape or form. So we see if we can get them in touch with services prior to getting to that point. So that's one example of how we do these things. Or, you know, we've been involved in a lot of um, protests and demonstrations lately. Instead of waiting for the protest to happen and showing up with a bunch of police officers to stop the protest or enforce people honking their horns, we'll reach out to the organizers beforehand and have that discussion before we're at an emotional state on either end and right. see if we can and see eye to eye on something and come to a compromise so that we have kind of a clear set of, of rules that we agree on so that if something does happen and emotion does get involved on the day an event takes place, we can meet and we know each other and we can say, look, we discussed this and we agreed to this and this isn't happening, where do we go from there type of thing. And that's that's a far more effective approach than showing up with a bunch of police officers in, in riot gear and, and those kind of things. But, you know, there's I say that too, also not ever having been had the experience of being told through a court injunction that I have to go do this, it's my duty, right? And and those are, those are kind of interesting experiences too. We see it a lot with COVID and the, and the mandates, things like that, where these are new things that we're experiencing and new things that police officers are being asked to do. And there is some resistance in certain areas of, in certain police departments, there's always people who have their personal feelings um, attached to something or, you know, past pra best practice doesn't apply to this situation because I mean, by virtue of what best practice is, it's always past practice. And when you're faced with new issues and you insert best practice, it becomes confusing sometimes. And people, they, they, you know, they, they're resistant to that. So. so you're saying that when COVID started, like inside the police were different voices of how to deal with the mandate or how to deal with the protest against the mandate? I think it was even before that. It was even, you know, what, what we saw was... I mean, I remember having an interesting conversation because we're dealing with tremendously complex issues that have been around for a very long, I mean, systemic racism, right, is a, is, is, a, is a topic that's been so so hot in media and everything lately. And yeah. yet it falls, you know, I, I've heard police officers say this issue that hasn't been able to be resolved over centuries is now falling onto individual police officers and police departments to deal with. That's, oh, that's a lot. That's really 
a tough one to take on or a global pandemic that's a health crisis is now falling on the police officers to, officers to enforce who wears masks and who has vaccine passports. And that's that's tremendous amount of responsibility as well, too. And it can be really overwhelming. And when things get to that point, it gets it gets emotional, it gets frustrating. And and police officers, you know, aren't always equipped with the, the tools to deal with these things. And sometimes the tools don't even exist yet of how to deal with them. And we're being asked to resolve it. So Yeah. Yeah. So what do you learn or how do you actually deal with this kind of uh, situations? Like when, like the, the proactive, I really like this approach. This is so mm-hmm. smart. Yeah. And, but when it becomes very emotional, I remember in Nelson, we had the uh, people uh, yelling and, and cursing uh, restaurants at the beginning at the pandemic mm-hmm. and the, and the police was called and, There was even one person had a heart attack, you remember? Uh, yes, yeah, I do. I, I think, yes, yeah, somebody, was that the one I where someone sp- spat on someone and then there's, they had a, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, easy, very heightened emotional states, right? That's yeah, very complex thing. When it gets to that point, it becomes very difficult to resolve in the moment, right? And that's... And then you have where, to use force? Well, yeah, I mean, if so, you, we're allowed to as police, you don't necessarily have to, but that's the one... I heard it described once as one of the judges in town as police having a very unique privilege in society. And I remember hearing that and thinking privilege, this is a huge burden, the amount of responsibility we have. And, but as I thought about it, I agreed that, yeah, it is a, it's a privilege that nobody else has. We can come to those situations that are heightened emotionally where everyone's not able to see eye to eye and it's become physical and we can use force to stop that. We can take someone's freedom away and put them in jail. That's huge, right? And to, to stop that from happening. Nobody else in society really has that ability, that, that uh, privilege at that, you know, that re- readily available for them. You can, as a citizen, do that, but it's not safe. You don't have the training, those types of things. So that's why we rely, rely on the police to do that. And then granting that privilege to the police or granting that um, responsibility to the police, it needs to be taken very seriously. And you need to make sure that you only do that in circumstances where it's absolutely appropriate. And it becomes difficult because it's it's a human being in the in the police officer's uniform, and human beings are capable of their emotions changing very quickly based on words that are said or elements that are are present that you're not expecting to be there, especially in a small town. I mean, I remember being in one of the early uh, one of the biggest protests we had against I think it was mask mandates and covid mandates. It's about a thousand people. and It was really the, the mood in the crowd was really good. I was in the middle of the crowd and I thought to myself, I really need to approach this as though, as though my kids are in the crowd because there's a lot of kids in the crowd, families and things like that. And it wasn't five minutes later that I turned around, my daughter was actually there, just walking through the protest and on her way to a, to a hair appointment. And I thought to myself, I could only imagine if I'd let emotion get the better of me in this situation. I got upset with somebody and then stood my ground. I wasn't willing to back down to my daughter witness that whole thing. It would have really been an unfortunate moment. And that, you, you know, you have to realize that those things, it's not just because your daughter's there, it's because other people are there. And that's really important because how we react as, as police can definitely change um, the mood in, inside of a large crowd like that or, or a demonstration or a protest. Or as we saw in the States, the actions of a police officer can cause riots across an entire planet. Right? It's, yeah. We have a tremendous responsibility. It's very true. And is it your call in a situation like it's become explosive to arrest a person or you have to ask someone or, or if you can arrest them? And then 
whose call is it like when you decide to use force? Um, in, in most cases, it's the individual police officer. Like if we're, if we're you know, dealing with a circumstance, say I get a 911 call right now and I have to go out and deal with two people fighting over something, it's, it's going to be the individual officer's choice to do that. As calls get more complex, myself as a supervisor, I might step in, say if you know, we find a stolen car in town and it takes off from members who are trying to stop it, I would step in as a supervisor and make the decision, we're going to continue this, we're not going to continue it. And then as things get more and more complex and where people get involved and we do things like operational planning and that, you know, it might be somebody in my role or somebody at a higher rank um, to set out what the rules of engagement are going to be so that um, the officers who are in the moment and really emotional about things don't make a bad judgment call. It's kind of, we're just supporting each other to say, look, I know this is recognizing that it can be very um, traumatic and emotional for the officer in the situation so we're going to clarify from a distance where we're not not emotions not being inserted into it what is going to be the best course of action so right. so yeah it's a you know a 911 call we go to might be the individual officer at a blockade at ferry creek it could be somebody on the other side of the province making the decisions as to what as to what the officers on the ground are going to do and not do how much they're going to allow the protesters to damage something or advance or blockade and and when it's time to take action so right what is considered a peaceful protest and how protests work in canada um so in canada your your right to to pr- protest peacefully is a is a protected charter right it's one of your fundamental freedoms um it's a very you know our government and i agree it's a very important right that needs to be protected so as a police officer you have to be cognizant of, of that as well too when somebody has a peaceful protest um and someone takes a, you know exception to it you need to do that kind of balancing act evaluation as to where that that line is so i mean there is a number of different legislations and well there's not just a number there's a whole huge book the criminal code of times that us as police officers can take away somebody's charter rights and freedoms. Um, some of the specific ones, if, if people are, you know, it's not, not peaceful anymore, it's becoming violent. Um, that's when we can, we can use, you know, use our legal powers or legislation to stop somebody from, from harming other people. If there's hate speech, those kind of things, if they're inciting people to do things that go after a group of people and cause damage to restaurants, we can, we can prevent people from doing that. Um, if it's uh, causing a disturbance and it's not peaceful and it's causing other people to be disturbed, that's a criminal code offense that we sometimes mm-hmm. use. Uh, most, probably the most common one we use is it's called breach of the peace, where it allows us to apprehend somebody to prevent that breach of the peace from continuing. And it's what a not apprehend? A, arrest. Yeah, we arrest, arrest somebody. Okay. Yep. So we can arrest somebody and. Um, and we can hold them in custody until we believe that that breach of the peace is no longer imminent or substantial, and then we're obliged to release them without charge back into back into the community. So we, we use that one not a lot, but that's a very common one that's used because you know once emotions calm down, there's no need to put somebody through a criminal justice process that can take years and add a bunch of stress to to their lives and and make a lot of work for everybody and affect their future. Uh, if, you know, we have one of the ones that people talk about is we have these protests that, that block roadways. Um, so there is a specific section under the criminal code that says if you block a highway and a highway can be defined as pretty much any roadway uh, and you do it with the intent to intimidate or threaten somebody, that can, you can be arrested for that. 
So a lot of people have questions around that because we have we had a um, uh, I think kind of a ex extinction rebellion protest along the lines of old growth logging that walked all the way through the main street in town down to the RCMP detachment where they had a, a ceremonial fire. And there's a lot of people saying, well, they're blocking the main highway. Shouldn't they be arrested? Well, yeah, they're causing a significant delay, but are they doing it for the reason to intimidate or threaten somebody? And in that case, they weren't. And, you know, you have to, it was a, a question I was asked on one of the courses I took for, for bronze command course. Um, we had to do a, a mock kind of, um, operational plan for a protest that was going to happen in, in we were in Victoria when we did the training and then you were evaluated on your operational plan and at one point the evaluator said to me okay so you're in front of the Empress Hotel it's a very busy street and the protesters have decided to sit down and block that street for a period of time what do you do now as, as the commander of this event and I thought well I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow them to do it and I'm going to speak to an organizer and, and determine how long they're going to do it for and we can shift our resources if we need to divert traffic and et cetera, et cetera. And he said, well, they're blocking the, the road. You can't allow them to do that. And I said, but this morning on my trip from the hotel to where we were doing the training, I had a 10 minute wait for construction. And that's allowed, right? Where, you know, that's, these are reasonable delays. So you need to, you know, your officers need to not get too emotional about these things, understand that there's delays all the time. And how can you reduce that, that emotional element so that you can have people you know, divert around that so you can have the people who are blocking the road maybe do that for less of an amount of time to minimize the disruption so that they can get their message across but then continue to move on. It's it's so common that the the problems that we face today arrive out of the solutions that we employed yesterday, so to speak. So we tried to solve it and now all of a sudden we're faced with another problem. So you have yeah. to kind of move slow and, and think about these things. And that does require you to remove the emotional element from it, which is very difficult as a human being, but it's a very important piece to it. What what would trigger a policeman? Like what would trigger you when you see a protest? Would it, when it, we say this is like people with good intentions or bad intention, is it part of the what like the sign that they have or also how they provoke themselves and how they talk with you specifically or what, what is that, emotional yeah what triggers this emotion in in the policeman it's i think it's different for for i know it's different for every police officer and it's actually different for every police officer uh depending on what's happening in their day depending on on i mean i know as a police officer and just a regular person, right? I'm, I'm at my worst when I haven't had much sleep, when it's been too busy, when I have a lot of added stress in my life, when I, I'm feeling like I'm overwhelmed, that's when I'm, I don't approach things at my best. Um, those, so certain things might trigger me. It could even be words, right? In those situations, they say something and I take exception to it because I don't, haven't uh, had very good mental hygiene at that point, right? I haven't taken care of myself. Um, but uh, I mean, I for me, I hope the things that would trigger me is that somebody's, you know, their safety is in danger or somebody's about to do something that's about to put other people in danger, then that should cause you to, to react to those situations. So, and it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's that, that word trigger has become used quite a bit in, I've heard it so many times. It's like almost on a daily basis. I'm, I'm feeling triggered. And, and my thought around that when I first began to hear it is if you're, if you can recognize that you're feeling triggered about it, then you need to take the next step and understand if you can recognize it, then you can deal with it, right? You can calm yourself down about it and you can be rational because simply 
recognizing that you are is only the first step in that process. Okay, this is, yeah. I'm having an emotional reaction to this. Now, what can I do to bring myself kind of under control so I can actually think about it and, and come to, you know, come to a place where you can resolve it or, or act appropriately, or in a lot of cases, not take action. You know, if I, I remember doing um, a briefing for one of our protests here, and I, and I quoted uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who I can't remember the exact quote, but he said the, the test of first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time and still maintain clarity, right? So it's a very difficult thing to do because there is always yeah. two different sides, and it's, you know, probably derived from something like Rumi, who said, beyond the place of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field, I'll, I'll meet you there. Right. It's not, it's not always about whose side is right because we have, and, and in talking about those things, it, it, I really think of the, the middle of that involves you removing your ego and your emotion from the situation. And if you're able to do that, which is very difficult, um, then you can come to a situation where you might find common ground in the, in the, uh, the totality of everything. And is it a conversation t- talked in the police? Is it something you talk as, as part of your training or part of... Like, oh, yeah. yeah. It is. And, I, and for me, it's, I, I think it needs to be ongoing for every police officer. And that can be, they, they take it upon themselves to, to pursue continuing education, make, make learning a lifelong journey as opposed to just something that you're required to do every year through, through um, policy or something. Um, but it's also... You know, continuing as you know, person in my role as a supervisor, continuing to have these kind of conversations with my members, and you know, setting the tone and having very real conversations at the beginning of before we go out and deal with a protest to kind of acknowledge that we're we're all kind of feeling a little bit afraid here, or we're feeling a little bit unsure, and and that's okay to feel that way, right? And we and, and we're all going to be in this together, and it doesn't mean that we're all on one side. It means that we're all going to support each other because everybody in the room is, is going to have a different idea of how we should be approaching it too. And if we don't have those kind of conversations and we aren't able to listen to the other people that might actually have the correct answer at a time when we need it most. Yeah, this is beautiful. I have two questions coming from mm-hmm. what you said. So um, one is that I talked with one of the council member here and we talked about the convoy. And he said, yeah. when everybody said to Trudeau, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, he's expected to, to act. Otherwise, mm-hmm. he's perceived as a sissy or, yeah. or a wimp, or I don't know. And, and I said, but he's in this position of not, not acting upon his emotions. He said, but not everybody understands that. So yeah. I wonder what's your take on that? Well, you do as soon as you have to understand as soon as you step into a position, I guess it's an authority position or, you know, a position authority, of, of yeah. yeah, authority is a good, a good word for it because you do have a, you know, you're, you are in a position that's kind of viewed to be, I don't know, higher or more powerful mm-hmm. or something. There's, as soon as you do that, you have to understand that you're held to a higher standard too, right? Exactly. And if you're not, that's what if I wanted to say. Yeah. If you're not prepared to do that, then you really shouldn't step into these positions. It's um, Theodore Roosevelt had a, an amazing piece in um, in one of his speeches, "Citizen in the Republic," I think that's what it's called. And he talked about that. It's it's been recycled many times over the "Man in the Arena" speech, and he talks about it's not the critic who counts. You know, it's the it's not the person who points out where the doer of deeds could have done them better or where they made mistakes. It's the person who's actually in the arena, who's covered in 
blood and dust and sweat. And although they they err continually, they make mistakes over and over again. At least they they did so trying to do something greater than just being a critic. And um, you know, so it's like so, so they shall never know the you know the company of those cold, timid souls who never dared to be great, right? Essentially, it's I butcher that completely because the way he says it is is really pretty amazing. And you, that's what I carry around with me. Um, Brene Brown talks a lot about that in her book, Daring Greatly. I think the book's basically based on on that speech. Um, yeah, if you if you don't like it, if you want to be there and, and say, fuck you back, then you need to get into the cheap seats and you need to be with those people. Um, it's hard to do, right? It's, it's hard to hear what some people say. Um, and when you get more experience in this career, it becomes a little bit easier because you have to, you understand, or I have understood anyway, um, that nothing anybody ever does is personal, right? It's one of Ruiz's four agreements. It's nothing anybody does is ever personal. It's just they're reacting in a way in the role that they're in, in the movie set in their own mind. And yeah. they're attacking you because that's, they feel the role they should play. So it's, it's, they're very difficult things to do. And they're a constant struggle to make sure that you're always remembering those things. When somebody calls you a name or somebody insults you or tells you you're not doing your job, that it's not a personal attack. And, you know, I'll go out today and, and be really successful and following my own advice. And then I'll go out tomorrow and I won't be as successful in it because we're not perfect as, as human beings. We, that's what makes us you know, really amazing, too, is that we're not always uh, exactly the same at every moment. And you have to kind of understand that about yourself so you can you can deal with those types of situations it's not fun but I don't know there's there's a lot of rewards in this job too that come from being able to do it and be in these positions so yeah Mm -hmm. Do, do you feel also because of the uniform and and the job you have you're being dehumanized by by people in it's a that's a really good question and I there's been times when I felt that there's been times I know other officers feel that it's like akin to racism. It's akin to discrimination to say, you know, you're going to kill a police officer is, is the same as hate speech. And then I heard it put really well. Um, I can't remember. It might have been Dave Chappelle, the, the comedian. He basically said, yeah, at the end of the day, you can take your uniform off. You can take your role off. I can't take my skin off. I can't take, you know, these, these other, um, my heritage, where I'm from, my religion, I can't take those things off. And that, I, I think that's true. It's a bit more difficult in a small community like Nelson, because I know when I'm off duty, a lot of people know who I am anyway, just because I've been a police officer in this town for, for 13 years now. Um, but at the same time, you have to, you have to understand that those types of things, you, it's up to, up to you as a police officer to, to take them that way too, right? To react to them that way. Um, so you do, you have to do a lot of work to, to kind of come to terms of why people are saying, why people say things like that, why people do things like that um, in order to, to kind of put it in its place and compartmentalize it, so. Okay, and, and the other thing that came up from what you said before, you said a lot of conversation with people and, and in the protest, and what I heard from the Ferry Creek land defenders, that the police are not re- even willing to talk with them. There was no <laughs> conversation. They were talked to, they could talk to the police or at, I don't know how to say it, like at the police, but the police would not respond at all. Mm-hmm. And again, the RCMP, they may be a little bit different. So how do you, like why they get this kind of orders not to talk with them, not to make eye contact? Mm-hmm. It's, I, I, 
I, I would guess that in those cases, and I'm guessing because I haven't been privy to it, that if you, as soon as you get involved in a conversation with somebody, you run the risk of, of taking a side, becoming emotional about it, saying something that then can be taken out of context if it's videotaped or, or whatever. So I'm sure the, the direction is given, just don't engage, just don't say anything. And then that way, the only thing they can pick on is that you're just not engaging and not saying anything. And, and there's not really anywhere else you can go from there. But if you, if you say something that, that's taken out of context, then it creates a whole bunch of other work for you know, the, the commanders and people behind the scenes to, to clean up. Really, at the end of the day, um, when you react as a police officer, when you react to those types of things that are, if it's being videotaped or it's in the media, or you take a really strong stance on social media as, you know, if you have your own Facebook page or whatever, or, you know, you do a podcast like this and you become really emotional and really try and, and push, a, push an agenda, push a point, it fuels the media cycle. It creates, it creates news, right? It's, and so they're just trying to avoid that. They're trying to, to have them end up being the, the news, right? Which is, it's a really complex thing. I mean, police are now being kind of used in a lot of these protests uh, as a marketing tool, right? To, in what way? Because it, our presence brings attention to to these events, mm. right? So if if we're helping to coordinate them, keeping people safe, providing escorts, all those things, it comes at a, a lot cheaper than hiring you know private security for a, a group of protesters, and it allows them access to all the other great resources like police, fire, or ambulance, other police agencies. It's a it's an amazing uh, resource to to draw upon, but it does it. Police, being a police officer is the most visible profession in the world, right? It's, we walk around in a, in a really prominent uniform and we draw attention to ourselves when we do that. So if you can put a, a bunch of police officers at the head of a protest with flashing lights and in uniform, then you draw attention to the cause and you help market it as well too. If you um, intentionally get yourself arrested, that draws more attention to it. And the police oftentimes are used as, as the tool to, to further that cause. Right. So, I mean, I've had a number of conversations about that with organizers and protests and, you know, the, and they've said we're willing to get arrested. And I said, well, you know, if that's what, where we're at, well, you just need us to arrest you to market your cause. Then let's do this in a way that's um, least impactful to everybody involved. I don't want my officers or myself fighting with somebody or anybody getting hurt. Nobody needs that. And if, if we need to arrest you because you want to further a cause that you feel that passionate about, then let's do it in a way that we can you know, all continue to be part of members of this community and have these discussions afterwards, as opposed to be divided and, and become enemies with each other. So this is very interesting perspective that that the police think that um, land defenders use the police to, to market the, um, the cause? I, I don't think all of them do. I mean, I've, I'm kind of speaking just my own lived experience because I've never even been to Ferry Creek or, or Medi and yeah. anybody from there. So, I, and I haven't had the opportunity to speak to them. Um, in some of the conversations I've had with organizers here, that seems to be the underlying reason. And they, and they understand that and they're very open about that too. Mm. And it's not a, hey, we're going to do this because we figured out a way to make life difficult for you as police. What they're saying is this is a really important cause to us. And we really feel strongly about old growth logging and climate change and we and nothing's being done about it and we're getting really fed up with it and we were gonna, we're going to try this avenue where we get ourselves arrested because we need to draw attention to it because we feel it's that important mm -hmm. and i gotcha. i understand right i understand gotcha. that that's it's not not that we're you know being being used in order to further our cause i guess marketing is probably not the correct term it's they're they're figuring out a different way to have a collaborative approach 
with a really alternative kind of way of dealing with a situation because they feel helpless and feel that things aren't, they're not being listened to, that things aren't changing quick enough. Yeah. So. Okay, I have a question. In, Israel, in the Israeli army, we have an order called illegal order. Uh, and a soldier can disobey the order if he, if he finds it illegal. So do you have the same thing here in Canada? And what is the consequences of, for you if you disobey an order? What happened with you? Like an officer refusing to do something that they're ordered mm-hmm. to do? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we, we have physically, yes, we have that ability to say, absolutely not, we're not going to do that. Right. Um, and then, of course, it goes through a evaluation process, usually through in BC, it's the British Company of Police Act. That's kind of the overriding piece of legislation that whether or not decides you choosing not to do something falls under the misconduct of neglect of duty. Right. So if you that's the kind of in the simplest sense, you're asked to do something, you say, I don't feel, you know, you're asked to arrest uh, COVID protesters and you say, actually, you know what, I kind of feel like I agree with them. I'm not going to do it. Well, then we would probably get a different officer to see if they if that's the order we're giving uh, they would you know see if they would do it and then we would deal with that officer who says I'm not going to do it by yeah. speaking to the office of the police complaints commission and there would be an investigation that took place to see whether or not they were allowed to neglect that duty right so I mean and there's and those misconducts and under the police act there's a bunch of different um, ones that that could be applicable to a situation like that as well too so I mean, if you if you know that you're going to go into a situation where you're going to be asked to do something you're told by your chief constable that this is what the expectation is and you knowingly go into it to try and disrupt it then it could fall under a number of different misconduct so you could do it but there's going to be consequences for it uh, most likely or at least, very least there's going to be questions asked about why you did it and why you felt the need to to neglect that duty at that time yeah but it's not automatically that you get uh, fired because you It just depends okay. on this depends on the severity of the circumstance uh, very rarely though would it be a, a situation where you would you be automatically fired because um, I mean in policing uh, you know being a unionized position or a position that has a labor union behind it when management teams decide to fire somebody if they make that decision too quickly it ends up costing a lot of money to You know to have that person get their job back and wrongful yeah. dismissal wrongful termination type of thing so generally speaking those things aren't done that quick because unless it's very very obvious which I can't even think of a situation that comes to mind um, in my experience that that's happened not saying it hasn't um, but usually it follows a pretty kind of a slow process where the person's put on administrative duties or suspension with pay while the investigations ongoing and then as the investigation develops they determine the What course of discipline they're going to take so okay I want to ask you about what's the wet then what we saw on the news that there is buses of um, police that looks like military with mm-hmm. rifles and like super scary yeah. stuff why they chose this uh, attitude towards the what's wet then it's not the same attitude that they chose in fairy Creek so I, I'm not super I'm not familiar with the details of of um The events around it but you know and there is um specific uh i get they call it dress and deportment um which is essentially what dre- dress dress and dress like how you dress dress and deportment how you basically how you dress right what okay. tools you bring to it and yes absolutely under you know crowd control training or you know we have people doing protests those types of training how you approach the situation what you wear and what tools you're wearing do dictate um 
what the response is going to be and how people are going to perceive you. So if you, you know, I, I mean, it's, I remember one of my officers saying that, you know, sitting there speaking to somebody about firearms and things like that and how the person was threatened with a firearm and they felt really scared. And he said, absolutely. It's a hundred, it's a very scary thing. He said, I'm speaking to you now and I have a, a gun with me and it's on my hip. And the conversation's fine, but if I take it out and put it on the table, that changes the conversation entirely right away, you know, in a very, very serious way. So when police officers show up in that way, it's because they're they're letting, I'm guessing that in that situation, they're letting the protesters know that there is no uh, wiggle room in terms of negotiation here. Mm-hmm. It's the, we are, we are going to be telling you what's going to happen. And if you don't, then there is going to be potentially lethal force used. It's a very serious situation and you don't see it very often. And, and, you know, as a, somebody above my rank who would make that decision to say, this is what we're going to do. Um, if they do that in a situation where it's not appropriate, then there's a tremendous amount of liability because uh, you can cause people to react to police in a way that they wouldn't have reacted if you'd shown up dressed a different way. So the, the United Kingdom is actually a place that's done probably the most work on on these kinds of, uh, this type of training and crowd control, crowd psychology, those types of things with larger football matches that they have and, and protests and things like that. So we, we get a lot of our training from United Kingdom um, kind of trickle down through larger departments to us. But, I mean, so what do you see if you have your, your rifle or without it? What do you see the difference? What is the difference? If I, I mean, we do have our police department, our members are equipped with a, with a rifle. Um, to the regular person, it's a very scary looking rifle. It looks like a machine gun, like a military rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time that I'm going to be using that is if there's an imminent uh, threat to life and I, and I have to deal with it. It's not something that I walk around with because it, it's actually, an, it's an encumbrance. If I do, if I show up to a, a call, that's kind of, eh, maybe not, I don't, I might need it. So I'll bring it. Well, then I have this huge thing hanging from my neck. That's something I got to worry about where I'm going to. You know, it's but how people different react to you differently. They, you see, they're scared, and they will. Oh yes, yeah, intimidated, and, scared, yeah, and and, and more reactive become, because of that, or less reactive. It, it depends on the person, but those are all possibilities, right? But you can. You, one thing that's for certain is if I show up with that, there's going to be a different reaction, and it could be a more volatile, volatile reaction. It could be a more submissive reaction, mm. but the reaction will change. This the situation gotcha. will change. Yeah. But you can't dictate to which side more submissive or more volatile no, no, no. you can't <laughs> no no you can you can make everybody's a guess different right? everybody's different and you know and like I said before just everybody's different throughout the day and throughout different stages of their life too so yeah. so true mm-hmm. yeah when I saw the the picture from what the police are simply going to what's wet and I thought maybe it's it's kind of a tactic to scare them. not to not to resist but yes. not to well, actually it, use it yeah it could i mean if i'm sure that was that's part of it as well too but in doing that you know when you when you prepare police officers to respond in that way you can't do it i mean i don't feel you, you should be doing it to as a bluff to say look this is what we could potentially do um you're doing it you know in those situations it should only be deployed when it's when you've had these these briefings and these discussions to say there's a very real possibility that lethal force will be used against our officers when we show up so because of that we need to prepare officers to to respond in kind it shouldn't be done as a as a bluff move or as a, a, sh- a display of power because 
you know, in those situations where you do that and the person does, or a group of people do react um, volatile, volatilely towards that, then it becomes what's called an officer-created jeopardy situation. So you cause that to happen as a, as a police officer. Your actions caused a reaction that would have not normally have taken place had you not acted in that way. And we're held accountable for those types of things as well, too. So, Yeah. Do you see a difference between how a police address a native protest to white people protest with the, um, how you dress up, how you come up, how many people show up, you know, all, the, um, all those. Not here. I, I think because in Nelson, we're, we just, we don't have that many officers. Like I, I can't just draw from, I need 10 officers tomorrow. I have two officers on the road today. That's all I have. If I try and call out other officers, they're probably going to be not available Um, not here very quick. So it's, you know, and there, there's days like last night, because I, I worked noon till, till midnight uh, this week. And there was uh, last night after the, the Nelson Leafs won their hockey game against the, the Casagar Rebels, there's a whole bunch of people at one of the pubs. And there was a fight and, and myself and two of my officers showed up and then two other RCMP members showed up. And that even that changed the dynamic of the situation too. As soon as we had five police cars there, people started really You know the attitudes changed and people had questions and why is there so many police officers here and and you know there's that reaction is okay this is serious because there's so many cops here to the reaction of all oh, these cops have nothing better to do this isn't serious at all so it's it's interesting how how people approach that and I think but I do think uh, recently with just events that have unfolded there's been a lot more uh, attention paid to people you know whether it's indigenous native people involved in protest and I, I, I don't know it's it's we don't I don't think our response is any different but I think um, when we're dealing with these situations of people you know indigenous people saying that we you know have a rights to these lands asking these questions types of things I think that's being listened to I really do think it's being listened to these are very very important statements that are being made and and I mean this is at a national level through truth and reconciliation and seeing this things that police officers are are very much on board with From what I find when you say listen to by who by the by the government you mean I think just society in general I, that's the way I feel I think that these you know this is an unprecedented time with with truth and reconciliation and and reflecting back on Canadian heritage and for a long time I think Canada was kind of um, blind to the fact that there had been atrocities in Canada we always perceived ourselves as a peaceful nation we only got involved in conflicts when it was clearly a time to do that like in World War II and I know I was never it was never brought to my attention about residential schools growing up until I became a police officer and we, we were forced to kind of look at these these situations and say what what went wrong here like what happened why did we why did these things take place in our own country mm-hmm. and um, so yeah this is a very raw time for those for those issues to be discussed and they're out there I mean I was dealing with with someone um, And an indigenous gentleman the other day and he, he said that he brought up the buried children situation in different residential school areas in Williams Lake and uh, in Kimberly and spoke openly about it on the street those conversations weren't had um, three or four years ago before these, right. these things started to come to light so yeah. mm-hmm. you know one of the problems that uh, we see today with native community that a mm-hmm. uh, uh, mental health issue. Because yeah. in part of the trauma, part of you know broken families, all, all those like things happen to them in uh, residential school, of course. Um, do you 
differentiate between that mental health to white people mental health? Do you deal with it a little bit differently or it's the same? I probably have an unconscious bias around it when I deal with that. What I'd like to, you know, what I feel I, I'm doing is dealing with it um, fairly and empathetically in both situations. But I'm, I'm sure I approach it for the, with a bias somewhere along the way because of just, you know, being a human being in the uniform. Um, so, but really, you know, at the end of the day, too, it's trauma. Trauma isn't trauma for everybody. It affects everybody differently, right? So you have to be aware of that, too. Um, I know... Uh, people very close to me of, of, of Indigenous descent who really do not want to uh, feel that they're traumatized by these the, you know, things that happen in Canadian history. They feel that they, they, they want to have it cause them to be resilient and not be identified with that, that kind of movement or whatever you want to call it. And so it's, it's a difficult one. It's, you can't just assume that because somebody is of a certain descent or ancestry that they share the same beliefs. So if it forces you in those situations to not just have empathy, but also have some patience and inquire a bit more about where these things are coming from, right? It's, and to really kind of understand what your best course of action is going to be to assist somebody or help yeah. somebody out or get them in touch with help. Or, or maybe you're not going to be helped, so you need to, to access a different resource to get them some help. So, I mean, maybe, yeah, you show up to a situation and you just being a police officer automatically makes it worse, regardless of how empathetic and well-trained you are and there's nothing you can do about that and you have to recognize that too. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you maybe last question. When you look at how the police act in Russia today with um, clearing the protest or mm-hmm. dealing with protest, how do you feel about that as a policeman or as a, or, the, or as a citizen? I haven't seen any of the footage today. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's the situation in Ukraine and Russia is... When I, when I heard the news of that, it was, it was very concerning for me. It just it was, the, it was kind of the first time in, in my life where we actually saw a you know, strong imperialist move by one world power into, you know, to take over another significant world power. And that was pretty frightening very quick. And I, but, you know, for, for me, I have a lot of gratitude for, for the things we have in this country for the, you know, a, a lot of sadness and sorrow for what people are going through in that part of the world and how much it's affecting people, you know, in this part of the world fa- who have families there who come from Ukrainian and Russian descent. Um, but I do feel very grateful and very fortunate that we, we don't have that uh, going on in, in our part of the world today. But it is a very, yeah, it's a very challenging topic it's very emotional for me to see that and it's you know and I wonder why it's so emotional too because I'm not of Russian or Ukrainian descent but I still am a human being and 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 know that that must be truly horrible and horrific for people in that part of the world to go through and it's it's sad and it also makes me feel grateful at the same time that I'm not a you know we we live in a part of the world where we're not exposed to that but it's also a reminder that um things can happen very quickly where you are exposed to that, where it does end up coming, you know, into, into your community. And also remember to not to be, not to insulate yourself in the comforts that you have and just say, well, I'm, I'm glad that it's not happening here and then not do anything about it or not decide to actually think about what's going on and, and pay attention to these things. It was, there was a, you know, a lot of those discussions have happened lately and, and people have always brought it back to, 
to the Holocaust and how human beings got to that point where they allowed their neighbors to be taken away and they allowed their friends to be taken away and they didn't say anything. And then, you know, the, the famous saying, and then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know Russia is not going to stop it with Ukraine. No, they won't. No. That's the, that's the really no. frightening part. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm very inspired by how the Ukrainian leader is, is dealing with, with this <laughs> like he's he like it's like maybe the only leader we saw today that have the ability to unite unite us yeah you know again oh, that's yeah that's true leadership that's it's a, a very rare thing for people to do that you have the ability to do that very important how would you like people see policemen how would you like to be treated to be seen to be yeah by people in the street Um, I, th- I mean, I th- for me, it's just for people to understand that we, I think every police officer I've ever worked with in my career has always signed up for this job to make their community a better place. And really at the core of that is just they want to help people. Um, and it gets really, you know, police officers can, be re- can become really jaded because um, you, you scratch the surface of any ideological person and you're going to find a cynical person when they realize that their hopes and dreams just don't apply to the real world. But that's, um, you know, you have to continually work through that as, as, a, as the human being and as the police officer and, and come to terms with that and change your approach and change your outlook. But I think, you know, st- still inside every police officer who's here, you know, doing this job for the right reason is they, they want to do the right thing and they want to make the world and their community a better place and, and just leave everywhere that they went better than the way it was before they got there. Um, And that sometimes gets lost because people have different opinions of, of a version of what is better, right? Uh, so that's where the challenge is. But always remember that every police officer shows up to make the situation better, regardless of what the, the end result is. And, you know, then he hope that it is actually a better outcome in the end. So Another question. When you see the protest at Ferry Creek and all the, and their interaction with police, Do you have something to say to them, something that will help them understand the, do, do it better next time, a, a mistake that they're doing in provoking a, ideas, inspiration? How, no, how I don't. How could they do better? Well, I think, I mean, I, I don't really have a ton to say other than I think it's a very important thing that people do. In this you know in this country and that we have the ability to speak out against um, other people's viewpoints uh, is a very important thing and the thing you know that what what these protesters are standing for in that part of the world is an important cause um, just because I can't line up next to them um, doesn't mean that it's it's wrong or that I don't support it um, and I don't fully understand a lot of the you know where it comes from too. Right. I have to acknowledge that as well, too, that I um, in giving advice, it's it's a difficult one, too. And everybody who's fighting that cause probably has a little bit different version of, of why they're doing it as well. So, yeah. I mean, with uh, being been... more, more, more effective with communicating with police or with being more effective uh, protesting, you know, because they have a lot of trauma from from police. And they, they do and, but, yeah, and 
a lot of people, violence. And I wonder if it's, it is violence or it's, it's a normal thing to police to arrest them in this way, four, four policemen on one person. Like, is it normal? I think that the main thing for anybody, you know, who's protesting to remember when it comes to dealing with police is that the higher you, the more emotional you make the situation, um, the more personal you make the situation, um, the more passionate you become about the situation. Police officers tend to shut down and resort to the one thing they have left, which is just to arrest you, to silence you. Right. That's, you know, it's once it gets too loud and too confusing, that's what they'll resort to. So there's got to be a, a better way to communicate with with, you know, whether it's a police organization or the individual members on the front line. And I think central to that is is removing that personal element or the emotional element to it, which is very difficult because they feel, feel very strongly about this. And there is a lot of trauma involved. Um, you, you can't really be an effective communicator when you're screaming at somebody and insulting them people generally just shut down no matter how well trained they are. Right. Yeah. And, and there comes a point where they're going to just not listen to you or they're going to appear to be listening to you and just, and just ignore you and drown you out. Or in the case of police officers where we have that one privilege, that a lot of people don't have, we, you know, police officer will silence you by arresting you and taking away your ability to, to have that voice. So. When you find yourself in a situation like in Ferry Creek, when you have to arrest um, land defenders and, and people like that, would you call yourself villain, hero? Are you, are you the victim? No. No. I, I, I've been asked that a few times in this. Um, you know, where do I stand on the side of uh, old growth logging or COVID mandates? And I feel that my role is to ensure that I act in a way so that everybody on both sides of the argument can have a voice. That's what I am here to do, is to make sure that the people who, I mean, I don't know if there's, well, logging companies obviously don't outright go out and say we, we support old growth logging, but they, you know, they're gonna end up participating in it by virtue of what their work is. Um, but we have to, a police officer has to figure out a way so that people on both sides can, can have an equal voice. That's my job, that's what I'm here for. And then I support people on both sides in doing that. I don't you know, support people if they want to commit acts of violence or, or harm people in order to get their message across. That's where I do draw the line. But in terms of having a voice, it's important that we, we continue to talk because it's one of the very, it's a very important distinction that we have as human beings from other species on this earth. We have the ability to talk. And, and as long as we keep talking about an issue, we do have hope that we can resolve it. But as soon as we stop talking, as soon as we shut down, as soon as we silence people, um, we take away that, that ability to resolve it right away. Yeah. And maybe, maybe also differentiate, because when you say when people are emotionally, they're not a good communicator or negotiator, and then you said yelling. So emotion, there's like a scale in this emotion, like you can be maybe emotional shutdown or emotional crying or yeah. emotional, mm -hmm. like, can you say more about like, what is emotional that is not affecting? Because I think when you are connected to your emotion, you're also connected to your power in the no, same time. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I guess that's, yeah, it's a good point. It's um, being emotional, I guess it just becomes kind of a, a cliche general term for people being angry. As soon as you get angry and you become okay. confrontational and volatile that's the the spectrum of emotion that generally doesn't help with communication you can be yeah you can be very inwardly emotional or even outwardly emotional and and be an excellent communicator but as soon as you get to that point where you're you're angry and volatile people generally 
want to shut down or, you know, they want to become more volatile, angry than you to get their point across. And then it becomes yeah. a full-blown conflict. Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversations podcast. Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet.